0: We're starting a new series going through the book of Daniel. We'll be doing this for uh, really all the fall until we go into Advent. And we are, exp- if you've never explored this book before, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll have the words on the screen, but it's kind of halfway through the Old Testament if you, if you want uh, to, to have it there. And I want to just begin with this question. How does it feel right now for you, if, if you are, I know most of you are, some of you are probably exploring faith, but if you are a Christian, how does it feel right now to be a Christian? How does it feel in 2022, in Denver, in Arvada, how does it feel to be a Christian? Most of us feel some kind of tension. Most of us feel some tension. We might feel a tension to try to fit in as the world around us changes. We kind of feel a pressure, whether it's at work or school or with friends, to to fit in, to not stand out as the the weird one. We kind of feel some pressure towards that. Some of us uh, might feel a, a fear of being seen. You may struggle even to identify yourself as a Christian. You, you struggle and fear kind of being seen as something that you don't see yourself as. You don't want to be seen as judgmental or hypocritical or bigoted or extremist. You don't view yourself that way, and you struggle to hope others don't see you that way. Uh, some of us are just frustrated. We look at the world around us and see things that are changing or see things that are different or see the way that Christians are presented, and we have a frustration by that. We don't like that. Whatever it is, most of us feel in some way, if you're a Christian, in some way, kind of feel out of place a little bit, feel a little bit of this tension. And maybe if you're not a Christian or you're exploring faith, that might be even one of the things that is kind of on, on your pro-con list, on the con side of, am I interested in Christianity? It's like, yeah, all those things you just said, I, I don't want to have to deal with those things. It's nice to fit in. It's nice to be in place. It's nice to kind of feel at home here. Most of us struggle with some of this, and we ask the question or feel the question. Maybe you don't necessarily ask it, but we at least feel the question. How do I remain faithful here in this world? How do I remain faithful? How do I remain faithful in a world that isn't Christian? How do I remain faithful? What does that look like? What does it look like for a lifetime to remain faithful to God as a Christian? What kind of posture should I have? What kind of attitude should I have? What does it look like to engage or disengage? What does it look like to remain faithful? What does it look like to be a parent to kids and help them remain faithful? What does it look like in our world as you ha- if you have a career where it's not a Christian career? What does it look like to remain faithful there? What does it look like with friends and neighbors? What does it mean to remain faithful when we live in a world that isn't Christian? And we are looking at the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, what happens is the people... The people of Israel, God's people, they have been sent into or taken into exile. This is a map. Uh, This is Jerusalem. And God's people are taken over by the empire of Babylon and taken into exile. This happened in the year 605 BC, and it's about 700 mile journey that they take. If you were here at the beginning of the year, we looked at the book of Zephaniah, so the prophet Zephaniah speaks to God's people in Jerusalem, warning them, if you do not repent, if you do not change, God is going to bring judgment upon you, and everything will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happens. They did not heed God's warning, and they are taken into exile. So there's a lot of background there That's if you want to go back and listen to Zephaniah, you can do that. But what happens is God's people have been unfaithful to him for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And years. They do not repent, and so the empire Babylon comes and takes the people into exile. There's actually kind of three different ways, waves of the exile that happen, the final one being that they burn the temple to the ground. This, the book of Daniel, begins with the first wave of the exile, where they take a handful of people, they take a selection of people into Babylon. And Babylon here, an actual city, an actual place, is used throughout the Bible, though, not just to to mean this one individual city. Later, uh, in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation, Babylon really is just referred to as the world's system that is against God. It is identified as as the kind of prototypical place where values and thought and action are different from God's kingdom. And so Rome was called Babylon in its time. And today, our world that we live in, our city, would be Babylon. Anything that has values and thoughts and actions that are not under God's rule. And so it speaks to us today. We're not in exile, but we live in Babylon And in some ways, we are in exile. The New Testament says, though we are not, we haven't been taken from one country and put in another country, the Bible says that Christians are like exiles because we live in a world that's not our home. We live in Babylon, where the world doesn't worship God. We live in its system with its values and its thoughts and its actions. And so, how do you remain faithful in Babylon? How do you remain faithful? That's what the book of Daniel is about. That's what the whole book is about. The whole series that we'll be looking at is answering that question. And today, as it introduces the story, asking us, how do we remain faithful here? What does it look like? It's written for that. And so let's begin just asking this. Why is faithfulness difficult? Why is faithfulness difficult in Babylon? Why was it difficult for them? Why is it difficult for us? What makes it hard to live in a world that's not Christian? What makes it, and I just even think about, don't, don't say it out loud or anything, but just think about this question. What makes it hard right now for you to live faithful as a Christian? What makes it hard? What makes it hard in your neighborhood, in your career, at your school, with relationships? What makes it hard to live faithful as a Christian? Let's look at what happens at the beginning of this chapter. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God. They take some things from the temple and put them into, into their temple to say, we won, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction and all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Why is faithfulness difficult? Babylon is the biggest empire of its time. They knew what they were doing as they conquered cities, they were brilliant. They knew how to overtake another country. They knew what they were doing, and the strategies that they used are really still the same strategies that are used today and why faithfulness becomes difficult for us if you are a Christian. There's four different things that we can see that they do of why faithfulness is difficult and really what the world and what Babylon's strategy is. Here's the first thing. They give them a new community. It says that they brought some of the Israelites So what happens is they first, in this first wave of exile, they strategically target the best prospects. It says they take people from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect. That's what some of you are looking for. Some of you single ladies, right? Good looking, suitable, you can say, I'm looking for this. Put an ad on Craigslist. I don't think that's how people find people anymore. But they find kind of the best men and they take them hostage, essentially. These are essentially POWs. They take them. They are also, these are young men. It says this is known kind of historically. This would be around 15 years old that they take these people. They kidnap them. They take them into a new country and they give them a new community. They are not just conquering them. They are seeking to assimilate them. Okay? And they give them a new community. They bring them away from God's people and their homeland and they give them a new community. They give them a new community to belong to. They separate them from a community, from a temple, from a people, from culture, from values that they had known, that they had grown up with. They separate them from that and they give them a new community. Now, this is, the same, this is the same strategy that is used today and part of why faithfulness can be difficult. Listen, what makes faithfulness difficult for you and I is not just that there's things out there, but if you are brought into a new community with people that do things different, that do life different, that have different values and beliefs, it becomes harder and harder to resist that. It becomes harder and harder to not want to fit in. This is, you, you know this, we just call it peer pressure, right? And peer pressure is one thing, that's kind of one side of it, where people are pressuring you to do something. But the other side of it is just, I've been brought into a new community. I want to belong here. I want to be a part of this. It becomes easier to adopt the values, the thoughts, the actions of a new community. This is what happens to them. They're taken away from their home and everything that they know, the God they know, the people they know that help to stay and form them. And instead, they're brought into a new community with new beliefs and values where it makes sense to fit in. It makes sense to adopt these things that our friends are doing, that the people around us are doing. That's part of why. Part of why this is so significant. Part of why a church family is so significant. Because without a community of people, it's so easy to adopt another community's values and beliefs and practices. Maybe some of you have felt this. Maybe some of you, a lot of people are not from Denver. Maybe you grew up, At one point in your life, you grew up in a Christian home and it was easy to adopt the values and practices and then separated from that. Maybe when you moved to Denver, maybe it's not when you moved to Denver, maybe it's when you went to college or some other, maybe it's some other place. But if you moved to Denver away from what you knew and started to meet some people, started to meet some friends, it's easy to then begin to adopt the values and beliefs and practices that are shared by that community because we want to be a part of a community. We want to fit in. This is the first strategy that is used. The second is that they give them a new identity. It says that they changed their names. Now, that is significant in any day and setting. If someone had the power to change your name, that would be significant. But especially at this time, if you were here last week, uh, we even looked at kind of how uh, the, the names of Job's daughters had significance. Names had, have, had a lot of significance. They were really kind of your life calling. It was assigned to you as kind of here's who God wants you to be, who's here you, in some ways even a prophecy, here's, here's who God will have you become. It had so much significance in their name. Here's a little chart that kind of explains. Daniel's Hebrew name meant God is my judge. Great name. Beltajar means Bel, which is one of their gods, protects his life. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Change to Shadrach, the command of Aku, Aku, one of their Babylonian gods, saying, I live under his command. Mishael, who is what God is, to say, just it's this worshipful name. Who is like God? Change to Meshach, who is what Aku is. Almost the opposite, kind of an in your face. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, which it was only about last year that I realized his name was Abednego and not Abendigo. I was like, I was reading Abendigo and my wife was like, Abendigo? Like, what do you mean? Like he's some sort of bendy, like, like I thought, it, and I was like, oh my goodness, it's Abednego, not Abendigo, but I like Abendigo, uh, servant of Nebo. So you would see this change. You see how they had one identity and the culture changes it to give them a totally brand new identity that is opposite, saying, here's who you are now. Now today, the culture doesn't try to change our names. It can't actually give us a new name. You don't go into the DMV and get your license updated and they say, actually, we've changed your name now to uh, you know, whatever, something Kardashian or some, some cultural name instead, right? We're giving you a new identity. They don't don't have the power to do that today, but the culture still around us still does seek to change our identity. There's a lot of ways that it can do that. There's a lot of ways that the culture around us can seek to name us or tell us who we are. Sometimes it is with just saying things like self-esteem kind of messages. You are amazing. You are special. You You are everything. And we're told over and over again how we are the center of the world. Which if that's what shapes our identity, that leads us to believe essentially we are God. Sometimes we are told negatively that if you are a Christian, and it won't be said exactly like this, but if you are a Christian, you might—you are on the wrong side of history. Or you are hateful. Or you are judgmental. And there's titles that are attached to our identity that we either are chosen, we don't want to fit in with, so we say, yeah, okay, if that's what it's associated with, I don't want to be like that. I don't want a phobia attached to my beliefs. I don't want to be called this thing. And so conforming to an identity is still a strategy that is used in today's Babylon. Then it says education. For three years, they are to be trained. They're to be taught the culture's literature. They're to be taught about the gods, and they're to be taught about the goddesses, and they're to be taught about all the different things. For three years, this is college, essentially. They're indoctrinated, saying, We know that you have spent your life learning and growing under the Hebrew scriptures, under, under the, the Psalms and the Torah and all the different things that uh, we, we have in the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament, we know that you've been taught that. We know that you have practices and habits and festivals and things that remind you of Yahweh, that remind you of his values and his commands. And we want to teach you and train you because education is powerful. And this is true today again whether it's actually in the educational system or it's done through media. We learn and adopt so many values from the media around us. And when I say the media, I don't mean like the media like CNN or Fox, Or I mean media, movies, books, literature, social media, just all forms that we are consuming all the time. Whether it's actually the educational system or it is media around us, we're constantly soaking in values, beliefs, practices. The best way to change what you think and what you believe is constant messaging, constant indoctrination. You will be, listen, some of you maybe aren't aware of this, but if you look back on things that you didn't believe and now you do believe, or things you didn't care about and now you do care about, and you go, wait a minute, what happened? Well, I guess I was spending a lot of time on Twitter, or I guess I was spending a lot of time on Facebook, I guess I was spending a lot of time on Instagram and now I buy these things and now I believe these things and now I follow these voices and listen to these people and it shapes us drip by drip over time. The world knows that this is true. This is why advertising and marketing are huge industries because it changes us, changes our beliefs, changes our values. The tricky part of this is oftentimes we don't even know that it's happening. For them, at least, it's, hey, come in here, three years, I'm going to teach you things. For us, often, this is part of the tricky part of media, is we don't even realize it's happening. We're just kind of soaking things in and listening to things and hearing things, and over time, we are shaped and become different people. Now, you might not think this is happening to you, but let me just, let's just kind of look at some things that we believe. We believe, as Americans, that happiness is almost the, the the best thing that could ever happen. We believe that at all costs, we should be happy. We believe when it comes, I, I talk to people about this a lot with marriage. When it comes to marriage, what's the most important thing? Find someone that makes you happy. Find a job that makes you happy. Find a career that makes you happy. Live somewhere that's gonna make you happy. Choose friends that are gonna make you happy. Happy, happy, happy is like our top thing that we want. You're not gonna find that in the Bible. So that was formed somehow in us, We came to believe that somehow we are very individualistic in America where everything is filtered through me, my grid. What do I think is right and wrong? I want to be who I am. The most important thing in life is self-expression. We are very individualistic. We don't like authority. Where did all that come from? Again, you're not going to find that in the Bible. We are in tons of debt spending and buying things that we don't have the money to buy. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Don't you think even just listen, I'm not trying to shame anyone that has debt, but think for a second. Don't you think something is broken in a society that says we have bought way more things than we actually have the money to buy. Something is obviously off some that there's just like a logical easily. Yeah. That doesn't actually make sense. And somebody's making money off of it. Companies are making millions of dollars, billions, trillions of dollars off of of getting us to buy things that we can't actually afford. Something's off with that. Somehow we've bought into values that say these things or these experiences are what I need to be happy, express myself. I'll do another one just because I'm on a roll here. How about uh, church attendance? We believe that this is good, but really an optional thing. Do you know there was times when it was against the law not to go to church? I'm not saying that that's what it should be today, but that shows a shift in our values, in our beliefs. Like the Bible doesn't present coming here as a good, optional thing. It presents it as this is what we are called to do. It's something God's people have done forever. So why is it that we believe this is good but optional? Somehow, we have been indoctrinated and enculturated into beliefs and values of the culture that we live in. The morality, all sorts of things that we look at, we have been taught. How about this? I'm just going to keep going. I have a big list, and I don't, I don't. it might take 40 minutes. Let's just go through all of them. How about this? We think that it is totally normal to just criticize people. Especially online. I saw this video of these. There was like this glass door and two dogs that were, and then accidentally the door opened, and then they're like, and, it, and it, it was a meme saying online versus real life, you know. But we think it's totally normal. Maybe even some of you, maybe even good and Christian, to be a jerk online to people. Do, you, do we really think that if Jesus was reading through our social media feed, he would be like, yeah, that's right, get him. I mean, I, I just, but we, it's normal though to do that. It's normal in our culture to do that. It's normal. We've adopted these values somehow. It's normal for us to believe that sex is all over the place, a great thing as long as uh, it's done between two consenting adults. That's not the Bible's vision. And, and I'm not, listen, I'm speaking to those of you in here that are Christians, Because I I, I I think I've shown these stats before. Christians basically adopt the same values, basically say the same thing. That's totally antithetical to what the Bible says and and to what church history has believed for thousands of years. So where do we get that? We've adopted the culture's values. How we use money, how we use sex, how we use power, how we think about our vocation. So, So many things that we just think are normal How we think about church, how we think about commitment, how we think about criticism, all these things. How about just offending people? Kind of the opposite of criticism. We think that we should never, ever offend somebody. And so it makes us cowards. We think we should never offend another person because that would hurt them. That if we just speak truthful things, we're now actually causing extreme damage to somebody. And that we have to be safe There's a great book written by um, an atheist. Uh, His name is Jonathan H. sociologist. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Excellent book, highly recommend, even though he's not a Christian. But just talking about how we have so valued safety that we can't ever say anything offensive. Now, I'm not saying you should say those things in a mean, jerk, criticism way that's normal, but we also have this weird value where we can't make anyone feel unsafe by what is true. All sorts of values and beliefs that we have adopted, that we have soaked in, and we think it's normal, but we've been brainwashed by the world around us, and that's true. that's true across the spectrum. I probably said something in there that you were like, yeah, amen, and then something that you were like, no, opposite of amen, whatever that is, no men, I don't know, I don't know what the opposite is. Something that you were like, yeah, that's right. And then something, no. But that's because we've just adopted culture's values or some culture's values instead of actually being formed by God's word. It's the exact same thing that they sought intentionally to do in Babylon. To say, let's take three years. We know that they have adopted values and culture from Judah, from the Torah, from being with God's people. We need to teach them and train them so that they are different people. All right, I'll move on. Probably offended some people. That's that's all right. Then the next thing that they do is prosperity. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. I've I've been to Italy. I've had some good wine, but I've never had the king's wine. I've never I've never had roy I've had Burger King, but I've never had royal food. (laughs) You know, I, I've never, I've never had this, but that's what is offered to them. It's prosperity. It's giving them a good life. It's giving them joy and comfort and pleasure so that they want more, so that they depend upon this. Sometimes, uh, I don't know if you've ever used this language before, but sometimes when I talk to Christians, they might have bad things kind of happen in their life and then say, Oh, I'm under spiritual attack. Maybe, but this actually says a lot of times it's the good things that are spiritual attack. A lot of times, I mean, think about your own life. What's more dangerous to your faith? What's more dangerous to your, to your confidence in God? What's more dangerous to your life pursuing Jesus? Is it the bad things that happen to you or the good things that actually fill you up, that distract you? It's the prosperity, it's the king's food and the king's wine that most often pull us away from God. Think about that great children's tale, Hansel and Gretel, about senior citizen cannibalism. It's one of the best children's tales that you can tell them, where she invites them into her home and lets them eat her candy. Why? Because she's a good, loving grandma? No, because she wants to eat them and cook them. The same is true, though. The same is true in our lives often. It is the good things that that pull us in. It's the good things that draw us in, that attract us. The thing that is going to most keep you away from faith, the thing that's going to most keep you away from God, the thing that's most going to keep you away from the life that God has for you is not the suffering in your life. Suffering can pull you away from God sometimes. I've seen that happen to people. People. But I'll tell you this, I've seen way more, way more. I've seen way more people that suffer and their faith deepens and grows and becomes a beautiful thing. And I've seen way more people who have a life that is filled with prosperity that go further and further and further away from God than they ever thought they would. Because it's distracting, it's comforting, it fills needs that you have. What keeps you away from the Bible? When you're suffering, a lot of times you say, man, I gotta read the Psalms, I need to pray. When you're busy and you have a lot going on and life is fun and there's a show to binge watch on, Cobra Kai just came out, season five. When there's a good show to binge watch, it's, that's the good things that often keep you away from spending time with God. Isn't it the good things in life, the king's food, the king's wine? that keep us from his mission, that keep us. What what makes you not come to church on Sunday? Is it life is so hard right now, I am struggling so much that I'm not gonna go to church? No, most of the time it's football. I wanna go camping, I wanna go hiking, I wanna go skiing, I wanna go biking, I wanna go kayaking, I wanna, Denver has every ing that you can imagine, some that I can't even say the, the prefix of. There's so many ings that you can do here. There's a lot of stuff, good stuff, that can take you away from God. This is Babylon. It's a radical reshaping. A new community, new identity, education, and prosperity. It draws us in, it feels good, and Babylon, were, they were geniuses. Isn't it better to do this than it is to just kill everybody? Because now you've got faithful, tax-paying laborers that have been totally assimilated and adopted into your system. This is what they did to conquer the known world at the time. This is what they used. This was their strategy. And it was brilliant. And it's the strategies that are still used today. And here's the thing. When this has happened, sometimes it's hard to know if you've grown up here and lived here. And it's something that we actually want because if you struggle to be faithful, if you struggle and feel it difficult, this, if you just say, I'm gonna adopt a new community, I'm gonna adopt a new identity, I'm gonna adopt the values and education that I'm given, and I'm gonna soak up the prosperity, it gives you a strong foundation to actually kind of live your life on. You fit in, you understand the world, things make sense, it feels good to live there. You don't have to deal with any of the tension of, this feels difficult. Do you feel this in your life? Do you feel these pools on you? Maybe you even, as you hear some of that, say, okay, yeah, that's actually happened to me. Think about your life. Where have you given in? Where have you compromised on your beliefs and values and practices? Where have you just kind of slowly drifted? You ever get in the ocean I know it's Colorado, but you know, you ever get in the ocean and you're in one place and you're not paying attention and then you wind up kind of way over, you've drifted? That's a lot of times how this works. You're in one place thinking, okay, I can kind of handle this, but over time, you slowly drift to a totally different place and you look back and go, yeah, five years ago, I'm, I'm a lot different than I was. Six years ago, seven years ago, I have new values, new beliefs, new practices, This is how Babylon works. So what does faithfulness look like? That's kind of the strategies that are used in Babylon. What does faithfulness look like? What what do we do? How do we resist? How do we engage in a culture like that? Here's what happens next. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch to not defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigns your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel says, I don't wanna eat the, the food from the king's table or the wine. So I'm asking not to do that. And the leader, his kind of supervisor says, basically, you're not, you're not gonna be healthy if you don't eat this stuff. Your faces are gonna look thin. You're gonna it's, it's, look messed up. If you don't eat and imbibe, you're going you're to be weak. You're going to be frail. And that would endanger my life with the king since I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, an almost 70-year period. What does faithfulness look like? So think about the big picture just in the world. What does it mean to be faithful here in our Babylon? Think about your own life and your career and relationships and think about what it means proactively and specifically in situations that you have to be faithful. There's three things here that we can see. The first is simple and yet it's the bedrock of everything. He says that he would not defile himself, meaning he wants to please God. He wants to please God. That's his first and foremost thing that guides his decision making. Why doesn't he eat this food? Why doesn't he drink this drink? Uh, the, the Bible commentators are kind of divided and unsure on this. Some say it's because this would have been meat and drink sacrificed to idols, and that's true, and yet that would also have been true with the vegetables. Uh, Some say it's because maybe the food wasn't kosher, but wine was kosher, so that one kind of is hard. Uh, I think where I land and where I think most commentators land on is just saying that there was something about this food that showed a dependency upon the king and loyalty to him where Daniel had to draw the line. He said, I can't defile myself. But whatever it is, whether it's because it wasn't kosher or it's because it was sacrificed to idols, whatever the thing, the principle is here that he is just saying, I can't defile myself. I have to stay pure to God, that above anything, my calling is to please God. This is the question. What does faithfulness look like? And I want you to understand that this is the first and foremost thing, that if you want to be faithful in a culture that's not faithful to God, if you want to be faithful in your career, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, at school, the first thing has to be, I want to please God. That's gotta be the guiding rubric. Not I don't wanna offend, not I don't wanna be seen as this, but I want to please God. That has to be first and foremost, the guiding rubric. Is it for you? Is that the beat of your heart? Is that what controls your decisions? Is that what leads you to do or to not do is to say, I must please God. This is what Daniel says. And listen, I think this is instructive for us too. Daniel goes to the chief eunuch and says, can I do this? And he, and the the eunuch says, not you might get in trouble if you do this, but the eunuch says, I might get in trouble. Which is a temptation to then say, well, I wouldn't want to hurt someone else's feelings for Daniel. I wouldn't want to offend him. In fact, I want to be loving to him. And I think so often, it would have been easy for Daniel in that moment when the eunuch says, hey, thanks for bringing this up. I care about you. I want, I want good things for you. But ah, man, this will get me in trouble. It would be really easy for Daniel to then say, well, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to put him in a rough place. I don't want to hurt him. And to then let his love for that person trump his devotion to God. That is a temptation we are faced with all the time, where we are faced with our love for people or our love for God first. And if you want to be faithful in this culture, if you want to be faithful, the very first thing has got to be, I want to please God. I want to please him above anything. The second thing that we see in Daniel is courage. It says, Daniel determined. He determined this is what he was going to do. And what does he do? He asks permission from the first guy. That guy says no. So then he goes to the second guy and asks permission. He doesn't stop. He is determined to say, this is what's going to happen. I am going to move forward. I am not going to defile myself. I will find a way to please God in this situation. First guy says no, he doesn't give up. A lot of times it would be easy for us to say, I gave it a shot. He goes to the second guy. Second guy says, yes. But if that guy said no, I believe Daniel would have gone to the third guy because he determined, I will please God. He has a courage. Though there is danger that is faced, though there is opposition, though there is obstacle in front of him, he says, I am going to move forward. And listen, there's two things that Daniel doesn't do. The first thing he doesn't do is say, I'm just gonna wait on God. If God wants me to not defile myself, then there will just magically be vegetables on my plate. He doesn't do that. Sometimes we believe, that we kinda kick our faithfulness back to God, and say, well, God, if you want me to be faithful, you gotta gotta put vegetables on the plate. But if there's meat, that's a sign that you didn't do something about it. Daniel doesn't do that. He says, I know what is right, I'm going to please God, and so he takes action. He doesn't kind of kick it back to God. The second thing that Daniel does, or excuse me, the second thing that Daniel doesn't do is make a plan based on what the outcomes are gonna be. Daniel says, I'm going to do this. Now, the results end up good. The results end up that 10, the 10-day 10 test is in their favor. Daniel doesn't know that. Daniel says, I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to please God, no matter the cost. That is what Daniel says. Sometimes for us, we say, okay, I'm considering not doing this or doing this. And then we think about the outcome. What's gonna happen? What's it gonna result in? What will be the cost? What might change? What might they think? What might they feel? How might they respond? And that determines what we do. That's not what Daniel does. Daniel says, I know that I must please God. It doesn't matter what their response is gonna be. It doesn't matter what's gonna happen to me. It doesn't matter what the outcome is gonna be. It doesn't matter how safe it is. It doesn't matter what the cost is going to be. I'm going to do this. Your faithfulness cannot be determined based on the outcome. It's determined on, I wanna please God. This is what is right. That's where Daniel stands. He has courage. He takes a risk. He has grit and keeps going. This is what we are called to. This is what faithfulness looks like. It means we don't do certain things. We do certain things. We keep going for what's right, not just giving it a shot. We keep doing what we know pleases God. We don't calculate what might happen. We do what we are called to do. Is that where you are? Is that the posture that you have? That's what faithfulness looks like. And then third, faithfulness looks like a humility and a graciousness. Look, he he asks permission. He gives kind of this solution or option, test your servant for 10 days. You can see that the way that though Daniel has this courage, though he's committed to pleasing God above pleasing people, Though that's true of Daniel, his posture is still very humble, right? His posture is still this deference. He still is saying, I'm trying to be humble in my opposition. I'm still trying to, I saw one commentator call it courteous courage. And I think that's true. Or I would call it gracious grit to say he is doing what he knows he's called to do, but he's doing it still in a humble posture. And so often that's not true of us either. We might have kind of a bumper sticker approach that's just kind of in your face. I won't eat your stupid meat or something, you know, that's just like, I, it's just this, this bravado kind of thing that we think is boldness and Christian, but really it's just mean. And he is humble. And he's offering solutions even. He's, he's not just saying, nope, not going to do it. He's saying, okay, how about this? How about this? He's trying to do what he can do to be gracious within the system that he finds himself in. That's a posture of faithfulness that we need in a culture that is Babylon. Respect. Humility. Oftentimes, we are tempted towards a total rejection or isolation. That's kind of how we deal with the culture around us is just, nope, it's bad, it's dumb, it's evil, I'm out of here. And Daniel's finding a way to still honor God, but work within the system and serve within the system. And he, for look at this, it says that God actually gives these people knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom and that Daniel remains there for 70 years. You know what that means? Daniel is serving the king for 70 years and then a king after him and a king after him. Daniel is engaged and involved in politics and in a governmental career in Babylon for decades. And he is a master of their wisdom and knowledge. So it's not that they say, we are going to train you for three years and he says, oh yeah, (laughs) burns the books. You're not going to train me in anything. He, He actually becomes the master at it, is better at it than anybody else. He understands it. He takes the classes. He takes the trainings. He reads the books and he's a master at it. That doesn't mean, obviously, that he agrees with all the stuff. It doesn't mean that his values change. His values remain differentiated, but he understands it. He takes it in. Think about how many, how many things he actually agrees to. I will serve the king. You can call me Belteshazzar if you want to. I will read your books. I will take your training. I will be faithful. I will be humble. There's a lot of things that he says yes to, even though he says no to eating the king's food and wine. Which is interesting that the thing he says yes to is actually a privilege. Oftentimes, as Christians, when we think the culture kind of pressing in on us, the things that we say no to are things that are actually, like most of us don't say no when it's a benefit. We say no when it's something we don't like. Daniel says no to things that are actually prosperity. That's where he draws the line. Daniel is faithful with humility. God wants us engaged. He wants us involved. He wants us understanding. He wants us serving. This is, when you look at Daniel's life, it's not integration, just finding a way to kind of be a part of it. It's not isolation. It's not just indignation, kind of mad at the culture around us. It's faithfulness. That's what it looks like. Very different, combining of various virtues that we often separate. Last thing, where does this faithfulness come from? How is it that Daniel is able to have this kind of faithfulness? Because that can feel really daunting. It can feel kind of overwhelming to say, if you live in a whole culture, I mean, just imagine their situation totally stripped away from your homeland. It can feel really daunting. Say, how do I be faithful here? Where does that kind of faithfulness and engagement and posture come from. When you read the story of Daniel, it really seems like all is lost. Even in the beginning when it says that they take things from the temple in Jerusalem and put them in their temple, it really is to say in the battle of gods, your God is lost. His stuff is now just decoration in our temple. It really feels like all is lost. And some of you may feel that way when you kind of think about your job or your neighborhood or our culture around us, just like, man, this, it's just gone. There's no way to, it's just, how do I stay faithful here? It can feel like that. It is hard, but here's the big idea that's throughout Daniel, three different times, the beginning, in the middle, and towards the end. It's that God is in control. Here's what it says in the very beginning, the Lord handed, meaning this whole circumstance that happened on the geopolitical scene God was in control of it. It wasn't just that Nebuchadnezzar overtook, it was that God was in control. And then in other people's hearts that are around Daniel, it says God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. And then as they are studying and engaged in the educational system, God gave them knowledge and understanding. God gave, God gave, God gave, God's in control. That's the big idea in this opening chapter and really in the whole book of Daniel is that God is in control. If we think that the world has won, if we think that Babylon has won, if we think that the culture has won, if we think that, what it leads to is either a fear that then just says, okay, there's no hope or it leads to then if, it, if it's won, I just need to fit in. It can lead to kind of either of those postures, a fight or fright or flight, any of those kind of things. But if we know God is in control, that actually leads to faithfulness. It actually leads us to still engage, to still have hope. It puts steel in your spine and love in your heart because you're able to say, I can stand against certain things and I can do it with grace and love and humility because God's in control. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear other people or world circumstances or my abilities. God is in control. If you knew that God was in control, even in the worst of circumstances, this is awful stuff. This is exile and the temple being burned and judgment and 700 miles from home. And it's awful stuff. And if you know that God is in control, even in the worst of circumstances, that allows you to have a confidence and a faithfulness to still please him, to still engage with others, to still endure like Daniel for 70 years. It allows you to remain faithful because you know that God is faithful. Our faithfulness comes as we see God's faithfulness. That's where faithfulness comes from. If you know God is faithful, that allows you to be faithful. Faithfulness means full of faith. You are full of faith in who God is. You are full of faith in what he can do. He can change people's hearts. He can give you compassion from people around you. He can change world circumstances. He can give you abilities and power to do things that you can't do by yourself. If you are full of faith in who he is and what he can do, then that allows you to be faithful. That's where faithfulness comes from. God is in control of our lives. We all want to be faithful In Babylon, we all wanna be faithful in the culture that we find ourselves in. That's what we all want. How do we do it? It means we have to constantly see who he is. It's easy to focus on ourselves and what we can or can't do. It's easy to focus on the situations around us that are hard or world trends that are difficult. It's easy to kind of focus on all these things. But faithfulness comes as we see him. And you know what? We can see even more clearly than Daniel can. Because we get to see Jesus. We get to see a God that actually came into the broken Babylon for us. God didn't just say, There's Babylon, there's the world that's against me. Jesus came into Babylon, He entered into the very heart of Babylon, He experienced exile for us. He experienced life in the broken, evil world for us on our behalf and lived faithful for us. We're going to take communion in just a moment. If you didn't get a little cup on the way in, communion is a time where Christians remember we have a God, a Savior, that entered into Babylon for us and experienced the worst that it has to offer, the worst injustice, the worst mistreatment, that on the cross, the only perfectly righteous, faithful one experienced the full weight of Babylon for us, for you, for me. He died in our place for our sin, even though he lived a perfectly faithful life. When we see that, and when we're full of faith in that, that allows us a confidence to remain faithful where we are. And what Jesus said to his people is don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving you in the world, but you're not to be of the world. But don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. This is true today for us, that he is still faithful to you. He's still faithful to me. He's working in your life, even in the worst. We remember his body broken, we remember his bloodshed. We remember he is faithful. So as you pray, take some time and confess where maybe you've compromised, where you've sought to just fit in to the world system, where you haven't had humility or you haven't had courage. Confess those things and ask him to remind you of his faithfulness. When you're ready, to you take communion. And if anyone needs prayer for anything, uh, healing or just anything going on in your life, I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you are faithful to us. Thank you that no matter what is happening in our world or in our life, you are a faithful God. You've demonstrated it to Daniel. You've demonstrated it with Jesus. And you've demonstrated it in our life. Help us to believe. Help us to be full of faith. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.